and there's this argument that oh well you can find everything online but people don't no. so when you when you, they, they often find the wrong thing or you know someone republished the times republished I can't remember what it was, but it was a very simple, basic recipe of mine that ran 15 years ago. They republished it, or Sam put it, like featured it in his newsletter or something a couple of weeks ago, and it became the most viewed thing of the day or something in food. And yeah, it's online. You can find it, but it helps to have stuff put in front of you. And, you know, I think new cooks... New cooks need to know there are 25 or 50 or whatever the number is really important recipes and and they're not going to find them unless or they're not going to find good versions of them unless you show it to them. Yeah. Interesting. So you sorry, so you, you did the minimalist com for 13 years. Uh, you've written 16 books and then a few years ago you segued to op-ed columnist on the New York Times opinion page. Um, I, I would find that a very intimidating Undertaking. You're on the page with the Tom Friedmans and, and, and the Krugmans and the Marine Dowds of the world. I mean, what gave you the chutzpah and the confidence to say, I can do this? Well, I mean, what gave me the chutzpah to write a weekly cooking column for the Times? I mean, it's the same kind of thing when you're, you know, the Times, like anything else, is a club when you're in your yeah. <laughs> So, you, um, I honestly, I've been arrogant in my life. Um, this wasn't that. I think I saw a need and I saw an opportunity and I um, was going to take advantage of that. I also had the good fortune to be close to people who were encouraging me to do it, who, people who saw that I was frustrated with um, just writing about cooking. I, mean, I love writing about cooking. It's super important to me. Who was instrumental in giving you, like I said, the encouragement to write about food politics and, and put yourself on a national stage like you have? Well, many people, but I mean, honestly, the initial idea was mine. But I went and talked to a lot of friends, mostly at the Times, who said, um, you're right, this is a good thing to do. Why don't you try to do it? I mean, it wasn't a long process. But finally, I found um, a guy named Chris Conway, who's still a colleague of mine in the Week in Review section. And I pitched a piece about overconsumption, overproduction of meat. And that ran in Weekend Review. It was called Taming the Meat Guzzler. And it was like number one on the most emailed list for a week. It was really, really a popular piece. And and so then I wrote uh, a number of more, a few more pieces for Weekend Review um, about food policy and uh, nutrition, politics, but but, you know, attacking things from a more, let's say, progressive point of view. Um, and then after two or three years of that, I thought, yeah, I could pitch this as a column. I mean, why should there be a column about economics and not a column about food? Yeah. I mean, what's more important than food? So I went and talked to Andy Rosenthal and David Shipley, who was then the op-ed editor, and um, I said that. And, and they said, but is there enough to write about? And I said, well, why don't I have 75 ideas on your desk tomorrow morning? And they said, fine. And I said, okay, then I did 45 because I thought that was enough. And then that was that. I think what's interesting about being an op-ed columnist is that when you were writing The Minimalist and How to Cook Everything, you were giving people recipes and ideas and, and people were grateful for them. When you're an op-ed columnist, you put yourself out there. You, No matter what you write, you're going to get angry comments. You're going to get argumentative comments. How, were you prepared for that? And how have you dealt with that, all the feedback you get every week? In all honesty, I have two jobs as an opinion columnist. One is I have to get it right. I mean, I have to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. So I don't 
right unless I feel pretty comfortable like, about that. And the second is I have to make sure that I actually believe my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not just taking some dumb arch stance because it's cute, um, as we both know writers who do that. Sure. Um, so if I feel like I have my facts straight and I feel like I'm behind my opinion, then I'm just saying what I'm saying. And of course you can have an opinion about it. Having said that, I don't read comments. That's how I deal with that. Because as you know, you can get 10 comments that say, you are a god, you're the greatest person who ever lived, you're so handsome, etc. <laughs> and then someone says, you're really a freaking moron and it, it ruins your day. Yeah. And then people pile on and respond to other people's comments and uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous road to go down. Um, is there one column you've written that you're really proud of that that was a column where I really said what I believed and I said it well? Well, I, I you know, it's, it, it's changed actually because in the early days, the column is now four and a half years old. In the early days, um, I did have 45 ideas in my head. I did, ha- I did have a bunch of things that I wanted to do. And I did um, two or three or you know, maybe a, maybe a dozen columns about things that really had not been done and needed to be said. So coming out in favor of a soda tax, for example. But maybe more to the point, I did a real, with a design team, I did a really beautiful food label that I called my dream food label, which is... If food labels were like this, the world would be a better mm-hmm. place. I can say that. I did a column about why cooking is cheaper than eating fast food because everybody used to say, oh, well, everybody eats fast food because it's cheaper than cooking. Well, it's actually not cheaper than cooking. And I, you know, I proved it I in a column, one, yeah. right? I, I um, wrote about uh, the terrible treatment of tipped workers in restaurants and the terrible treatment of workers in the food chain in general. Um, and that was something that a lot of, let's say, foodies didn't didn't know anything about or didn't know much about before then. Now it's different because I think I've covered the basis. So the question every week is not, well, which of these things I've been thinking about for 10 years can I write about now? But what seems germane, what seems um, what seems like it needs to be done right now? So uh, last week I did labor again, but but also there've been you know I wrote a piece, um, I wrote a piece called "What Is Society For?" late last year. I wrote a piece called "An Atheist's Christmas" late last year. I mean these things are straying away from food, but when you get into the big questions about food, you can't limit those things to to food because food is about equality and justice and the environment and Every, you know, it really addresses, if you're addressing food, you're addressing every issue there is. So the column has kind of grown. It's still a food column, but it um, it looks at many, many issues through the lens of food. And sometimes really it looks at issues through the lens of my head but or my eyes, But um, and the food gets left behind, but never for very long. All right. So, folks, you can read Mark Bittman in the op-ed page of the New York Times. You can pick up his latest book. A Bone to Pick, a collection of your favorite columns over the last four years. And now, you know what, Mark? We're going to play Lightning Round. 
Oh, good. What does that mean? I, I ask you questions, and you have to answer them. It's an either-or situation. Well, it is as long as I cooperate. Let's try. <laughs> but you're such a cooperative guy. All right. Some of these are kind of Berkeley skewed, so just, just roll with me. Uh, ready. Let's do this. Green juice or green tea? Green tea. You just say that so matter-of-factly. Like, you well, almost say that I'm disdainfully. Not, I'm not big into juicing. Never have been? No. Wow. All right. I like that. Napa or Burgundy? Well, that's so easy, Burgundy. That's like <laughs> ridiculous. That's not even a real question. Napa, let's talk about Napa in 200 years. That's <laughs> when right. Napa will have hit its stride, I think. We'll still be doing the, the Bon Appetit food cast then. Um, shifting gears, Lou Reed or Billy Joel? Lou Reed, there's no question there either. These are very easy. You so far have not made me think. Well, that, they're not easy. You're just decisive. I like that. Um, yoga or Soul Cycle? I don't know what soul cycle oh, yeah, is. Spin class, you know, when I'm you not, get on the bike. No, I'm not, it's not my world. I'm not into either. Now, do you, I've done yoga. <laughs> I ride done. a bike. <laughs> um, I'm glad how you're sticking to the food topics. Uh, farro or quinoa? Well, that's actually hard. I do like both. I would say I eat more quinoa. I like quinoa a lot. I think it's really great stuff. How do you typically eat it? No, but I can eat quinoa. I made a pot of quinoa for breakfast one day last week, and I had it with, um, I think, just maple syrup, just a little bit of maple syrup. And I really love that. And then it's sitting in the refrigerator, and you can do all kinds of stuff with it. The the leftover potential is great. Uh, But I would not. That's a... That's a choice I'm happy I don't have to. Like Billy Joel, Lou Reed, if you said to me you can only listen to one for the rest of your life, that's easy. But um, Faro Quinoa, I wouldn't want to have to make that choice. <laughs> We've got the tough questions here, Bon Appetit. Um, Yankees or Mets? I'm a Yankees fan. Oh, really? I'm sorry. Gosh. All right. All right. You're going out to eat, East Bay or San Francisco? Um, well, I live in the East Bay, so I... And I just said to somebody yesterday, I am no longer going to San Francisco for dinner. But that is really a lie. Um, but I eat much more in the East Bay. And also, I live in the East Bay. I eat mostly at home. So there's that. Craft beer or biodynamic wine? Uh, I, it's, it's a beer or a wine question, and I'm a wine drinker. All right. There you go. Good answer. Uh, a couple more. In-season tomatoes or in-season strawberries? Again, a choice I'm glad I don't have to make. But um, I have I would say my mind has been blown more in my life by tomatoes than by strawberries. Yeah. So that's I would have to do that. I will say this was an eye-opening. I was I was in Berkeley five months this spring. I just got back, you know, I just got it, came east a couple of days ago. Um and we there's a lot of good fruits and vegetables. You may have heard that. I've, I think I've read it by you, in <laughs> fact. I was at a party the other night, and these people brought cherries. And mm. like when you buy cherries, I mean, maybe I've just had the wrong cherries, but my experience on the East Coast, and I've lived here most of my life, is that you buy cherries, and like one out of every three or five, you're like, that's a good cherry. Too bad they're not all like that. This bowl of cherries, they were all like that. And I just could not believe it. But I haven't had strawberries like that on the West Coast yet. Final question. Butter? Uh-huh. Butter or olive oil? Butter or margarine? Butter or olive oil? <laughs> um, you can only pick one for the rest of For the of rest your of life. my life, they don't have to be olive oil. They have to be. They have to be. Because you can't make pasta with garlic and oil with butter. 
Best answer, best answer yet on the Bon Appetit lightning round. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Bittenden, thank you very much for We're joining done? us. We're done? That's it? We're done. Okay. We're out of here. Thanks, Adam. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is recorded to a digital device in the small conference room on the 36th floor of One World Trade Center in New York City. Our engineer is Mitra Kaboli, with production assistance from Bill Cushing and Kerry Polis, and is produced by Scott DeSimon. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or at bonappetit.com. Bon